Welcome to Afternoon Light, the podcast of the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. I'm Georgina Downer and I'm the host of Afternoon Light and the CEO of the Robert Menzies Institute. The Institute is a Prime Ministerial Library and Museum devoted to upholding the legacy and vision of Sir Robert Menzies, Australia's longest serving Prime Minister. On Afternoon Light, we explore contemporary issues relevant to Sir Robert's life and legacy with leading thinkers from around the world. Thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Well, today on Afternoon Light, we are speaking to Margaret Fitzherbert about Menzies and his commitment to the role of women in the Liberal Party and in Australian politics more generally. And Margaret Fitzherbert is the CEO of the McKinnon Institute for Political Leadership. She's a former state MP and federal government advisor, but I think most importantly, she's the author of two books on Liberal women the first Liberal Women Federation to 1949, and the second So Many Firsts Liberal Women from Enid Lyons to the Turnbull Era. She has made a a strong commitment to the history of the Liberal Party and its promotion of the position of women, and it's an absolute delight to have you on Afternoon Light. Thank you so much, Margaret. It's my pleasure, Georgina. Always good to talk to you. And Margaret, I wanted to start out um, going back in time, and I guess probably the the topic of your first book, about how strong were women's groups on the non-Labor side of politics before the Liberal Party was founded in 1944. I mean, it seems a, a, a foreign concept to us today that, that there were political groups that were just for women back in those days and, and women, while they they weren't elected until 1943 in the Australian Federal Parliament, they were a political force in themselves and of course represented a, um, a significant voting block and uh, an electoral advantage if you could gain their, their trust and support. Mm, for sure, you're right. I mean, it's something that happened so long ago, I think a lot of it is sort of lost in the mists of time. But the women's groups, the women's leagues as they were, grew out of basically the federation process when there was a huge discussion among the people as well as among leaders about uh, what this new country should be about. How's it going to work? What are our rules going to be? And of course, the issue of, of suffrage, the issue of the vote for women was one of the things that helped trigger these women's leagues. So when federation happened, you have South Australia already having the vote for women. Uh, So it was an issue that really had to be talked about because you couldn't have an issue where some of the new states had voting rights for women and others didn't. So the conversation happened. And there were conversations about other elements of suffrage as well. And so out of that, you get a group of of people in the general population who are really interested in issues of of government and how society is going to function. And you get a number of sort of, you might call them special interest groups that that spring up. And there were people who had campaigned very strongly for women to have the vote for the new country, some who had campaigned against it. Ironically, you have women campaigning against that concept as well as men. We might say ironically. Yeah, it is ironic. You you know, they're, they're politically active, engaged, and they're campaigning yeah. <laughs> not to be politically engaged. I know. <laughs> it is sort of hard to understand how that yeah. works. But, yeah. um, you know, different different times. Yes. So 
you have federation and then you have a whole lot of people who've been highly involved in this very political process who, one, you know, want to continue to be involved in the, the big debates of the day and the big issues of the day, but also have some really good skills. And the women were among that. And so you see in New South Wales, the Women's Liberal League, as it was called, was the first organisation to spring up. That came out of the pro-suffrage movement. So that's where they came from. Then you have the Australian Women's National League in Victoria with a second group. Many of their members came out of lists of women who had opposed suffrage, but who took the view that, oh, well, you know, if women do have the vote, it's appropriate that, you know, they be well-informed and that they exercise their vote carefully and we're going to help them do that. You have a similar organisation in Tasmania, also called the Australian Women's National League. You've got the Queensland Women's Electoral League. These women, there were thousands of women involved in these groups and they were involved in the, the basic political tasks of the day, campaigning, you know, person to person, knocking on doors, obviously before the, the mass media campaigning we see today. They were also... Um, and this is important, they weren't just out there, you know, doing very basic work while men led the organisation. They were running their organisations and they were partnering with other organisations that formed sort of loose party groupings that we see back before the modern party structure. And they were very powerful within those spheres because they were virtually an army of people. They were highly disciplined and they could get the votes out, and they participated in pre-selection, which was the other thing that gave them power. And it's those organisational skills which, of course, and we'll talk about this later, um, became such a, a benefit for the new Liberal Party in 1944 when the its predecessor parties had such poor organisational branch structures. Mm. The Australian Women's National League was able to to um to teach them a few lessons. But I wanted to just drill down into these women's leagues. So they invariably were in the non-labour side of politics, and it's important to I know some people don't like the use of the term non-labour, but the Labour Party and the Labour movement was very much at that time associated with with the male workforce and mm. uh, and and was was the impression for women was it was fairly hostile to to women in terms of its involvement um, of course women yes. supported the labor party in the labor movement but as a sort of a, a wife or mother or daughter or sister rather than as a as a as a key participant in in labor politics or the labor movement so those women's leagues were were very much a product of the of the non-labor political activists and that of course then foreshadows their involvement in in the liberal party down the track doesn't it yeah that's exactly right you have the labor party which is utterly dominated um, historically by the labor movement and by the industrial workforce which was predominantly men so before you have women going into the workforce in significant numbers around about the 1970s you have a political party that, that draws its strength from that realm and as a result has a very well-documented blokey culture, which many Labor women have spoken of, and I'm talking of decades ago in particular, of being unsupportive of uh, issues relating to women and more focused on issues of the male workforce, for example. By contrast, you've got the Liberal Party, which has decades of history of a volunteer wing that is um, largely comprised of thousands and thousands of women 
and who were, were not just foot soldiers but were leaders and were having an influence on um, the sorts of policies that were being put to women, they were very instrumental in the campaigns of the day. This is going back to, you know, I, I would look at the first half of the 20th century. You've got a period of some decades there where women are taking leadership roles in campaigns at a state level and on a seat basis, and you can see their mark. And one of the things that that led to was a distinct benefit for the Liberal Party and its immediate predecessors in terms of women's support, that women, certainly in the first half of the 20th century, were more likely to vote for um, the Liberal Party and its predecessor parties. And that was a, a huge advantage electorally yes, for the Liberal course. Party. Of course. Um, a key figure and a close personal friend of Sir Robert Menzies was um, Elizabeth Couchman, who, who became Dame Elizabeth Couchman, although was, was more commonly known as May, I understand. Uh, Menzies said on, on reflection of Dame Elizabeth's contribution that she would have been the best cabinet minister I could have wished for. She unfortunately never made it into elected office. But, but she is really key to the the Liberal Party's founding story and and the pre the, the previous year's history too in the the sort of collaboration with the United Australia Party as head of the Australian Women's National League which was a, a force to be reckoned with in in Victoria can you talk more about Elizabeth Couchman's contribution to the formation of the Liberal Party and and her 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 contribution as a, a political force too and a role model for women. She's um I think an extraordinary figure in political history and I think it's it's a huge shame she never got into Parliament despite trying. She spent much of the rest of her life supporting other women getting into Parliament, such as Margaret Guilfoyle, for example. So I would have loved to have seen what she could have done if she'd been there. Um, I think that. The comment from Robert Menzies, she would have been the best cabinet minister I could have wished for, is high praise indeed. I don't think he would have said that if he didn't genuinely believe it. She and Menzies had known each other for a long, long time before the Liberal Party was was formed in the 1940s. They had met before he went into Parliament. They had known each other when he was a member of the Young Nationalists, which he'd set up, and she was highly involved in the Australian Women's National League, and they were great friends. And they liked and respected each other and spoke frequently. In 1934, Robert Menzies said of her in the Argus that she was one of the greatest fighters we have on our side of politics, which I think is another great compliment that he that he paid her. She was very involved in the AWNL within Kuyong, which was his electorate. And he noted at one point that there were more women as members of his local party organisation, whatever it was named at the time than men. They were running his campaign. He knew intimately how good they were and he knew her very well and he trusted her. And he said later that it was critical that the women were involved in the new party. For decades, you know, there had been infighting and skirmishes within the non-Labor side of politics, the various coalitions that, that formed the party from time to time. And I think they they spent far too much of their time focused on internal stuff rather than campaigning. That was one of the things that, you know, Menzies was obviously trying to fix in forming a united party for the first time. But he knew that the women needed to be there. There's a bit of a myth that they brought money. I found no evidence of that. But they did bring members. 
They brought a branch structure. They brought people who knew how to organise and campaign. And they also brought a number of women who then took over quite senior roles in the party as well. So the relationship between Menzies and Elizabeth Couchman is, I think, quite critical to understanding how the party came to be formed. And in some ways, it epitomises the basis on which it was formed of, of a pretty equal partnership between men and women as far as political participation went. Well, obviously, it's um, the Australian Women's National League was, was critical to the formation of the Liberal Party. And Menzies at the the first conference to form the Liberal Party in 1944 up in Albury, he speaks about the importance of, of women's participation in politics in Australia quite forcefully. And I, I thought I'd just read out some of his quote because it's, it's quite powerful. And you, you've also got to appreciate the context of the time too. I mean, we're talking 1944. Mm. Um, the views of women are very traditional, very, very different from 2021. So this, this is... Um, and, and, and by this stage, it was only the previous year when the first woman had been elected to the federal parliament in Enid Lyons in the 1943 election. So you know, the idea of women in politics was, was still pretty pretty novel and unusual. And Menzies, who was quite a, a progressive when it came to women's issues, although by our standards today does not sound very progressive, but, it, but certainly he was, from a 1944 per perspective, very progressive. He said, women are unquestionably destined to exercise more and more influence upon practical politics in Australia. There was a time when they were thought to stand aside, exercising only passive influence. That has gone. In the educating of the electorate in liberal ideas, they have for many years been an effective force. Now we have an organisation in which all distinctions have gone and with men and women working equally for the one body, the resultant education value of our movement is going to be extremely increased. And so you have the formation of the Liberal Party, as uh, Menzies put it, it was a party where men and women were fundamentally equal. How did that position contribute to the, the actual organisational side of the formation of the Liberal Party where women were given such a prominent role compared to previous iterations, Margaret? Well, it means that you have a party that starts off with a quota, if I could be blunt about it. It means that you have a situation where the Liberal Party is started with um, equal representation in terms of delegateships from branch level through to what was then the State Executive and the Central Council based on gender. And that happened because the women insisted on it and because Menzies in particular knew them and trusted them. And I think also it's, it's consistent with Liberal philosophy that you should have that equality of opportunity and that was entrenched within the, the rules of the, of the new party. That was truly radical, truly, truly radical. I think that one of the things that also influenced this is wartime experience. It's a time when you've got a huge number of women going into the workforce, the paid workforce, the first time. And unlike the, uh, the First World War, they didn't sort of return to normal operating conditions when the war was over. They stayed in the workforce in increasing numbers. So you also have a large number of women who went into the armed forces. So during World War II, you've got 70,000 Australian women who are in the armed forces 
combined. My grandma. She, really? She, yeah, <laughs> is that right? She, she Why does that not search, surprise me? Yeah. <laughs> she was a go-getter. She was in the Searchlight Brigade and they were sent to, to Perth and I think she had a great time there. She was, you know, early uh, 20s, group of girls <laughs> operating the Searchlight. I remember uh, she, her telling me they spent a lot of time drinking creme de menthe. <laughs> <laughs> but obviously, I focused, that in my twenties as well. <laughs> focused um, on the search lighting as well. Yes, hopefully not doing both at the same time. No. That would have been a bad thing. They were different um, times. Well, <laughs> you know, you, I mean, your grandmother shows that you have that sort of experience. You know, you move yeah. away, well away from home. You have important paid work. You're part of a, a higher purpose. You're earning your own money. You're having a lot of fun by the sounds of things in her case. Stuff isn't going to go back to normal after that. No. And, you know, Menzies recognised that. I think the other way he he came to see this because he referenced it in some of his speeches is when he was in the United Kingdom and he saw the sort of work that women were doing for the war effort um, over there. That's actually where my grandmother comes in. She was doing her bit as a air raid warden coordinator in London during the Blitz. So, Mm. you know, he saw that sort of um, experience and recognised that the world was changing. And we know this because he spoke about it, you know, in his great sort of reflective period talking about the forgotten people. I was actually thinking this morning when I was looking at this before speaking to you that it's telling that he didn't talk about forgotten men. No. As some would have. Mm. He talked about forgotten people. And that's, I think, part of the... I think very skillful thing he did at the time was that he made a point of speaking to men and women very deliberately. Yeah, that that is that is really important to reflect on because um, the terminology at the time would have very much been default to to talking about men when referring to humans and people in society. You would refer to men, so yeah, that deliberate inclusion of both both genders and and consideration of women's women's issues too. Now I wanted to to ask you about that. What was it about Menzies' political philosophy and of course the the new Liberal Party's platform that was attractive to women? They've obviously got the Australian Women's National League and other women's leagues behind them in this new party. But policies matter and and it's the policies and the personalities of course, but the policies that 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 determine which party people will support in an election. And and the Liberal Party under Menzies made a really unprecedented pitch to female voters when it addressed policies that mattered to, to them. And, and we are, again, want to say we are talking about 1944 where women's traditional place was in the home and uh, and so these were policies that, that spoke to a traditional family life and, and women's traditional role, whilst at the same time there were, of course, Menzies was, of course, advocating for educational opportunities and employment opportunities for women. Mm. These policies were about building strong families fundamentally, weren't they? That's true. I guess I'd say there's two things about that. The new Liberal Party offered policies directly to women and that was radical and new. You know, they hadn't been done before. So you have policies on... Uh, things like child endowment, which is clearly pitched um, predominantly at women. But they also found ways to address other policies to men and women. And I I know that might sound almost patronising to sort of say that they did that because today we take that as a given. But 
you only have to look at the Labor campaign material at the time to see what a stark difference there is. So the Labor campaign material talks about issues of the workplace and the economy in terms of men and jobs. And you know, there's one ad that I think probably in response to what the Liberals were doing talks about you know the importance of men having jobs because they are husbands. <laughs> you know, so that you need your husband to have a job. Whereas the Liberals were doing things like talking about the impact of strikes on the ability of women to organise their households and and shop for the basic needs they needed, which is quite a distinct difference. One is is um, taking access to employment, which women were actually seeking and holding in increasing numbers, and that wasn't going to change. But looking at that sort of in, in the lens of blokes' jobs, husbands' jobs. The other side of it is taking an issue of industrial disputes and food shortages, which was you know the issue in question, and not talking about men at all in that, but actually talking about the impact on people who are predominantly women in trying to sort of you know find their way around the challenges that that presented for feeding your family every week. It's it's very different. And it was clearly very, very successful. Um, Enid Lyons was actually quite a key figure in terms of the importance of ensuring that women were talking about and being spoken to about and engaging on the issues that should matter to anybody in politics and anyone who was looking at casting a vote. But she was also someone who argued for policies that were specifically relevant to women. And I've mentioned the issue of child endowment, but another one that she was quite outspoken about was that um, until sometime around 1950, an issue in the 1940s certainly with the war, if a woman married someone who was a citizen of a foreign country, she lost her citizen rights, citizenship rights in Australia. And this created all sorts of issues, not least because there were a lot of rather rash wartime weddings that didn't last very long. And there were women who wanted to come home um, and had an issue with their citizenship. And then, yeah, that was an issue that she was speaking out about. Um, and one of the issues, again, this, this is in the radical category. I've used that word a few times. One of the issues that the women's leagues all talked about for many years was disparity in divorce law. And, you know, in some states it was easier for a man to get a divorce than a woman. And, you know, one example was, um, actually I should look up which state this pertained to, a woman had to show proof of three incidents of adultery. A man only needed one. (laughs) Um, And then there was the issue that women would typically lose their children if they divorced. Wow. And that was a policy issue as well that the women's leagues were very outspoken on and that in government under Menzies changed. Again, we might think in the days of no-fault divorce um, being long established that, um, well, you know, what of it. But, I mean, fundamentally a huge change and one that involved taking on the churches, which is not to be underestimated. No, no. Um, you, you spoke about... Dame Enid Lyons, or Dame Enid as she as she became latterly, who is an incredibly important figure in the story of women's political involvement in Australia. The first woman to be elected to the House of Reps in 1943. She was, and this was not 
does not uh, diminish her own capabilities and qualifications and achievements, but she was the wife of the former Prime Minister Joseph Lyons, who un- unfortunately died in office. And there's a whole backstory, which is a podcast for another day on 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 Joe Lyons and and Robert Menzies and and of course the enmity that that Enid Lyons did hold towards Menzies throughout her career, although they worked worked well together but she as you said she she made a huge con- contribution to the policy debates around child endowment and was a, an incredible role model for for women she, and while she was the first woman to be appointed by Menzies but a first woman to be appointed to federal cabinet she was quite disappointed by this appointment wasn't it um I, I think you say in your book her brother-in-law suggested she should reject the appointment. Um, She was made vice president of the executive council in the new Menzies government in 1949. Her brother-in-law suggested she reject it because it was an insult, although she did accept it. But uh, yes, it was sort of a a bittersweet for her, wasn't it, in the end, to achieve such high office, but but not not quite. (laughs) I think so. And it's always sort of a, you know, a footnote when we talk about the first ministers at federal level, that she had the status of a minister, mm. but she didn't have a department to administer. <laughs> so and she had not much to do is the, is the point. Yeah, that, She got to go be. to cabinet meetings. You can come to the meetings, but sorry, you don't get to really control anything. Yeah. Yes, and I think maybe the, uh, one of the terms that was used, she might have said this herself, was that it was a bit of a toothless tiger. Mm. I guess at the end of the day, she decided it was better to literally have a seat at the table than not, but... I think it would have been frustrating to not have the same status in some ways as, as the other people around the table. Do we know I did actually, Menzies, Menzies appointed her without portfolio? No. I've looked into this and I, I don't have a definitive answer to that. The um, a cabinet meetings that she did. So there's certainly influence that can be had there. So I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I mean, I suspect some of it was to do with knowing that he had to accommodate her. She was someone who came with a national profile. She was enormously popular. She was very influential in, in Tasmania. You know, um, she could make things happen there for this new organisation. She had strong views about policy and, you know, there were times when she and Menzies disagreed, for example, the party room meeting on, you know, one element of child endowment, he gave one view, she had a different one and she won. So she was someone he really couldn't ignore. I would only be speculating about why he didn't her a department to administer. Uh, I don't know the answer to that for sure. It's interesting though that um, when she turned up to her first party meeting, which was then the UAP, she was actually nominated for the deputy leadership, which she did decline. Um, wow. She, yeah, and she said, to be quite frank, I didn't think that I was in a position to assume such a job, seeing my lack of parliamentary experience as such, but I also doubted that men present would be inclined to vote a woman in. I thought I did the wisest thing in saying, no, thank you very much for the honour, perhaps later. I dare say perhaps later sounds a little bit self-satisfied. <laughs> oh, it's, yeah, I, I had never heard that quote or story. I am... Um, oh. I, I hate to say it, but it's but it's often been the problem. I don't think too much with women these days, but in the past, women women 
thinking they're less capable than their male counterparts to do a job they're probably much more capable to do. I can't imagine. Very likely. Yeah, <laughs> too many, yeah, too I mean, many she, men she, offered the offered the deputy leadership saying no to it, even if they'd never been in parliament before. True, but I mean, her point that you know she wasn't sure that she'd get the votes. I think maybe that's the issue. She didn't want to run and then and lose and lose. Mm. That would probably be worse. I mean, she and Menzies had a really complicated relationship and she saw it, I think, through the lens of, you know, her husband's experience. And of course. So she turns up at Parliament with, you know, a, a national profile and she was a, a very sympathetic figure. People really liked her. She was a, apparently a very, very good public speaker when your ability to stand up at a, a meeting and, and give a speech was a very, very critical tool for any politician. But she believed certainly during her early years as an MP, um, that that um, Menzies had undermined her, her husband and she also thought that he wasn't as good as her husband, unsurprisingly. Um, and she's quoted as saying a few years after Menzies died, let's be quite frank, he never had the common touch, the warm sympathy of people like my Joe did. It just wasn't in his making, his makeup and that's all about it. So, you know, there was there was history. There, there was, was history. history there. Yeah, yeah. And she she to the end really adored her husband and his and honored his memory, didn't she? She uh, she, she was did. a widow for many 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 years and uh, Absolutely. Never, um, that love never waned, clearly. Interestingly though, um, there is also a story that um, Joe Lyons early on in particular liked and admired Menzies and told his wife that she too would take to him tremendously. And Enid Lyons, um, you know, met him and took an immediate dislike to him <laughs> and decided at that time that uh, he was convinced that women were designed strictly for subservient purposes to shine only in the domestic sphere, which obviously history shows to be wrong, given the, the role that um, Menzies later played in relation to women. And she told her husband that Menzies would only become her friend when he had shown himself worthy of the honour, which she records that her husband just laughed at her saying that. But, you know, this is a woman who's pretty sure of herself. Absolutely. And she also, she also knew the environment quite well. I mean, she was, she was turning up as par- at Parliament as an MP, but not as a complete newbie. I mean, she knew most of the blokes already who were in there. She'd, she'd known many of them for a long time. Well, she was so. an active. She was a very active prime minister's wife, wasn't she? She she yep. campaigned for her husband. Uh, she she gave speeches. She she was she was very much part of his um, political machine, if you like. Um, I, I wonder, she... though, on reflection of her initial response or reaction to Menzies. It also shows the evolution of Menzies' thinking about the the role of women and his political philosophy because it's very much that wartime, World War II period when Menzies realises women women's role in society and his view of of their sort of you know, fundamental contribution not just to family life but to the workforce and the importance of um, educating women equally to men. That that wartime experience informs that. Um, so he he does his views do evolve, although yeah. he still he still even to his you know to the end of his career was was a traditionalist 
when it came to seeing the role of women within the domestic sphere. I mean, his policies, even in the 50s, tended to favour families with the male breadwinner and the stay-at-home mother and the controversial controversy over the marriage bar and the public service. So if you're a woman, a public servant in the federal government, mm. and you got married, you had to resign your position. And he was immovable on that, um, yep. despite there being big policy debates about that within his party in government. So yeah. he, I think he was the product of his time, like all of it. Of course. And yeah. he, was, he did have a very strong view on the marriage bar. Um, interestingly, others around him didn't. And obviously that changed under Holt, I think it was. But it was something that was, you know, the forces within the party, I think, were trying to get that changed much earlier. I mean, I guess I would compare it to divorce law change as well, something where, where Menzies was open to a huge change for the time. I think, as I said, Menzies was a product of his time. And yes, like all of us, his views evolved. But I guess I'd take you back to his relationship with Elizabeth Couchman who he'd been friends and allies with um, and, you know, I was going to say uh, brothers in arms, but that would be probably inappropriate. They had fought together in um, elections locally and beyond um, since the 1920s. But I think while World War II um, was a time when Menzies, I think, before others saw how the world was irrevocably changing, particularly for women, he has a strong history over the decades of working side by side with women sure. and treating them as equal yeah. partners. And, you know, his comment on Elizabeth Couchman from the 1930s, one of the greatest fighters we have on our side of politics, you don't say that about someone that you don't rate. No, no, it's very true. I would say too, on reflection, um, Menzies, when it came to policy changes, big policy changes, he was... He was um, Always someone who took a gradual approach. He didn't. He he looked for the the least disruptive way of evolving policies and reform and conducting reform. So you can reflect on his changes. Say his opposition to the marriage bar. He would have perhaps seen that through the lens of is that going to be terribly disruptive to society if we if we lift the bar, rather than as a as a view that. That you know, women's places in the home because he clearly, clearly in in all his speeches on the role of women, the education importance of education for women, he values he values that and he sees that as in, inherently just and right for for women's mm. equality. So it yes, it's 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 partly it was his reformist style was a gradualist approach, um, and that he wasn't. Was he was a Burkean conservative? He he re- respected the institutions that existed, and would mm. only change them in a gradual way to you know if the case was made. I wanted to finish um, our discussion today, Margaret, by um, by fast forwarding to to the current day, and just to ask you to reflect on the modern Liberal Party's role in in upholding the position of women and, uh, and, and empowering women in political life in its own movement and how that might have changed as the Liberal Party of 1944 and, and the Menzies era was the party of, of women's political progression, um, women's political involvement and, and was the party that, that advocated women's policies 
strong most strongly compared to today and and how that how that might have evolved yeah it's an interesting question I mean the Liberal Party pioneered um, equality of delegateship and it started the idea of policy specifically for women and obviously we've all evolved and things change and times change but I do wonder whether if some of the women who helped found the party were around today, what would they think of, of where we are today? The, the gender advantage that I referred to earlier with women voters uh, that the Liberal Party used to have has gone, and that is significant and is regrettable. But also the numbers that we've seen go into Parliament have not been maintained at the level that I think they may have anticipated Um, and certainly not what I think is preferable either. When you consider how strongly the women of the Liberal Party led in terms of female representation, they had almost every single first. You know, the the first woman minister at state level was a a Liberal, you know, the first woman in federal cabinet, first woman in federal cabinet with portfolio. You know, it goes on and on for decades, decades and decades. And that momentum has gone. So I think that's really regrettable. I think one of the reasons why, why has it changed, is that generally the party, the Liberal Party, has been better at progressing female representation, for example, when there's been a focus on it, when we stop focusing on it and think that it's just going to happen organically, it tends to stop. And one reason why I think that is I look at the experience of the Howard government and the sorts of efforts that went into identifying great women and getting them to run and supporting them, et cetera, in different places, and that leading to what was then the greatest number of, of women in the parliament, most of whom were Liberals. We've often lost that focus, and I think the women who founded the party would think that was regrettable. When I say focus, that's not meant to be a euphemism for quota, um, I've just referred to you know what the Howard government did coming into office in terms of the ways that were found to encourage women and support women into into seats. When we take our eye off the ball, we tend to go backwards, and over time it becomes the sort of problem where it means that every pre-selection, the issue is are you going to have a woman? We we shouldn't be in that position because we should ideally have sufficient numbers of women in parliament that. Every pre-selection doesn't need to be seen through a gender lens like that. But I think it's, um, I think it's sad, and I think it's um, unfortunate that the party doesn't look to its history more often. Well, at the Robert Menzies Institute, we're obviously trying to address that and uh, and talk about the history, but also remind people of the contemporary relevance of the history to to current debates, and and of course to to model some of the best the best legacies of the Menzies era for the future. So, um, Margaret, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you about Robert Menzies and his contribution to women's progression in politics and participation in politics. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. I've learned a lot and I, I do commend your books to, to people who want to understand more about this period of history and, and the issue of women's political participation and, um, of course, you are involved in a fantastic program at the McKinnon Institute for Political Leadership, not just for women but for men 
and women who are current serving MPs and and uh, it's such a fantastic initiative to really upskill and give um, MPs the, the best possible opportunities to, to deliver the most they can for the electorate in Australia and their states more broadly. So thank you so much. It's great. It's, it's a great opportunity. I'm really enjoying my work and I've also very much enjoyed talking to you today. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure. The Afternoon Light podcast is brought to you by the Robert Menzies Institute at the University of Melbourne. You can find more about the Institute and our podcast at robertmenziesinstitute.org.au. We're also on Twitter, on Facebook and LinkedIn. We look forward to you joining our show next week. Thank you.